0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: With shocking domestic violence statistics and increasingly well-educated women, Xi Jinping might be pushing it uphill, calling on more women to stay home. It's a potential time bomb. Hi, I'm Amanda Vanstone, you're on CounterPoint, the program that brings you different views from around the world. Our media seem to be obsessed with Trump, but a survey shows most people, whilst they have a view on the candidates, don't think the election outcome is particularly critical to us. It might be critical, however, to take action to save the remaining sequoia trees. Some are thousands of years old. Yes, you can plant seeds, but it's a long time before it turns into what you can still see today. And rats, can you believe they'll play hide-and-seek with you? They make great pets and are badly maligned. But first, to Xi Jinping and a possible big mistake. China seems to be in the news so much in relation to foreign policy issues, not so much in relation to women in China, but there's a very, very interesting story. We know that Chinese students who come to Australia, who are women, sometimes have difficulty adjusting when they go home to the different lifestyle and cultural expectations in China to those that they've experienced here. Now we've got a story about domestic violence in China, and equally about women saying, we've just had enough. We're not putting up with this anymore. There may well be a sort of revolution brewing. To talk to us about that, we're going to be joined by Aaron Sarin. He's joined us before. He's a freelance journalist and specialises in writing about China, among other things. And he joins us now from the United Kingdom. Aaron Saron, welcome back to Counterpoint. Can I ask you first up, when's the last time you were back in China?
2: Oh, it's quite a few years ago now. Uh, it's mm. in Beijing, Guangzhou and Guilin several years ago.
1: Yeah, I haven't been for a long time. In any event, you tell the story about Zhang Zerui and <laughs> the epiphany she had. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so this is a woman in China who is browsing through Weibo, which is the Chinese version of Twitter, and happened upon a feminist account, one of these feminist influences who are becoming increasingly common in China. And for her, the way she describes it in, a, in an article is that it was like an epiphany. It was like a door opening in her mind where it seems she had never considered before that women didn't need to live the kind of the Confucian ideal, the particular road that's set before them by traditional Chinese culture and then strongly encouraged by the Communist Party under Xi Jinping, which is very much that they should be a, a dutiful wife and mother. They should be obedient to their husband and their husband's parents and put those things before any kind of personal ambitions that they might have. She read a post saying that women should put their own needs before those of their partners and families. And then this triggered something in her she feels like she woke up and then had a quite dramatic reaction shaved her head destroyed her cosmetics and applied to study physics at university she'd been forbidden to do that by her family but that's what she wanted to do so that's what she decided to do
1: she was lucky to get in wasn't she because you mentioned that uh, some of the universities in china have a very low acceptance rate at the moment for women And they have a higher entry score for women, making it harder for them.
2: Yeah, the acceptance rate at some of these universities is 98% male, 2% female. And female applicants are required to score 100 points higher than males on their entrance exams for certain universities in China. This appears to be part of Xi Jinping's push to discourage women from doing anything that would distract them from marriage and procreation and raising the family several reasons for that, but the most pressing one is the demographic disaster that China's facing. There are not enough babies, nowhere near enough. The birth rate's dropped like a stone. And if the Communist Party wants to be the global hegemon, then it needs a working-age population. It needs more children, so it needs women to stay at home and have children. That's the idea from the perspective of the party. Now, it's not looking too good, is it? Because
1: marriage and birth rates were already quite low... And China even passed a law apparently making divorce more difficult to try and fix that up, not that that would necessarily Mm. help. And then you add into that there's a failing economy, the cost of raising a kid. For women, the negative outlook on you being competitive at work or working even. Yeah. And frankly, with the lockdown, the lack of security, realising that, you know, you don't necessarily have any control over your life and the lockdown there was really, really serious. And then you toss into that domestic abuse. And, you know, there's no woman I could speak to who would say, yes, that's going to work well. Women are going to have more babies in those circumstances. I mean, the women I know would just shake their head and say, you're crazy. It's not going to happen. What do you say?
2: Xi Jinping needs Chinese women not just to give birth, but to have several children. The one-child policy was scrapped, then the two-child policy was scrapped, then the three-child policy was scrapped. Right now, there are no limits, but women are having one child, if that. Most young women known to me, who are mainland Chinese, don't want to have children at all. So all those factors that you mentioned are working against any rise in the birth rate in the near future in China. And then the domestic abuse factor, this is my opinion, is that that is the key factor in making the average Chinese woman think, why would I put myself through that? Why would I enter into a situation where... You know, some of the time, almost like a kind of a servant, not just to the husband, but also to the husband's parents. Stories of domestic abuse have gone viral. So I think that particular combination of the fact this is the age of the internet and these stories can spread so easily and more and more Chinese women are aware of how bad it is. I think that they're opting out.
1: Yeah. You raise a couple of examples, each of them quite horrific of domestic violence. On their own, you might say, well, that's only one example how can we rely on the figures? And I don't mean that to suggest they're not right, but given the government doesn't want women to be out in the workforce, they're not going to be wanting to tell the full story about what domestic violence is there. So I just wonder how researchers get their figures because I don't think you could necessarily rely on government sources
2: to give you honest figures.
1: Do you have any view about that?
2: Well, I'm not sure. The government figure is 35.7% of Chinese women endure violence at the hands of their partners. The Communist Party is famously unreliable. Obviously, will massage figures to produce the best to make things look a lot better than they are. So it would seem likely that the true figure is much higher. Chinese people known to me suggest it's definitely much higher than this 35% figure. I don't know quite how they would calculate a figure like that. So, yeah, I don't know if we have reliable statistics. no. It appears to be very high. Those two particular cases just struck a chord and represent a a problem which is enormous, even if we don't have a a definite figure.
1: You raised a couple of terrible examples. One in Shandong where teachers and relatives and a whole lot of people knew what was going on and no one did anything. In the end, the woman was beaten to death by her husband. But you go on and raise a couple more that I'd particularly like to focus on. And it's just unbelievable in my lifetime to find... A woman chained up in a cellar. How does that happen? A mother of eight children
2: chained up in a cellar. Right. This is a woman who had been trafficked. This is in Shuzhou, which is in eastern China. A woman who was found chained by the neck. She appears to be mentally ill, possibly schizophrenic, and it's not clear whether that's something which happened as the result of her various experiences that she's been through or whether it was something that predated that She's had eight children. These may may or may not have been forced pregnancies. And then she was being kept in an outhouse by a man who had purchased her chain to the wall. She's now known as Iron Chain Woman, like Tank Man from Tiananmen Square. That's the label that's been attached to her. It's quite yeah, she, different from she,
1: her real name, which means Little Plum Blossom. So Little indeed. Plum Blossom has become Iron Chain Woman. I mean, it's just appalling. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to the other one that was pretty bad. And that was the women who were in a restaurant. And some fellow went up and touched a woman on the knee or something, whispered something to her. And she was not happy about that. So she pushed him away. And then he smacked her. And then she smacked him back. And a whole lot of people came in from outside. And the women at the table were dragged outside and beaten up by onlookers, as well as the man concerned. That's way beyond an individual case of domestic violence. I mean, I don't excuse a man beating a woman. That's not the point. I'm just making the point that it apparently goes from that to a situation where a group of unrelated people might feel happy to join in and bash up a woman.
2: Yeah, so it escalated massively. It suggests that this is something systemic. I know know the word systemic is kind of misused a lot in Western cultural discourse, but I think it does apply to the Chinese situation. There is something we could call systemic misogyny. The idea that, yeah, women can be beaten with impunity and they are somehow inferior to men. All of this is caught on camera as well, the incident that you mentioned, the Tangshan incident. Yes. So if people could search for that quite easily online, Tangshan incident 2022.
1: It's just, I mean, I know I've said it before, unbelievable that this sort of thing can happen in this day and age. And as a helpful reminder to fellow Australians, you write that your sources tell you that police are now watching out for suspicious gatherings of women in bars and
2: bookstores.
1: I mean, that's Mm. a lack of freedom that Australians would find hard to understand.
2: Yeah, well, I I think from the perspective of the Communist Party, I think it's terrified of any large-scale organisation that isn't directly controlled by the party or is being directed by the party. So it, it doesn't really matter if people are gathering for religious reasons or political reasons or angry women are gathering because they have something in common. All of these things are terrifying to the Communist Party. As far as I can see, basically, it gained power illegitimately through violence. It's never been voted into power, and therefore it constantly worries that it will be removed from power through the growth of an organisation which is opposed to it or becomes opposed to it.
1: Yeah. You see, they say if you educate a child, you educate one person, but you educate a mother and you educate a generation. So women can be extraordinarily influential in a society. So it's not only that they make right. a decision for themselves, that they're now not going to have children or whatever, but in terms of their nieces and nephews and everyone else, they can be extraordinarily influential. And as You point out, you don't think authorities have got, you say, the slightest understanding of what they're dealing with. I mean, this is really a very broad issue, the Weibo hashtag about the incident that we were talking about in the restaurant. You say got 2.8 billion views and 2 million comments. So it's extraordinarily widespread. And you've got women making decisions for themselves and encouraging the next generation. You know, the Chinese government might not realise what they're taking on if they annoy the women, when women are now expressing anger and resentment at repressive policies to now, as the government, be beefing up those repressive policies, saying you want them to continue, you want women to stay at home, they're going in exactly the opposite direction to that which the women seem
2: to be heading. Exactly, yeah. They're trying to force the issue, which is what they always do, because the Chinese Communist Party only understands force. So, as mentioned earlier, they're trying to make it harder for women to enter universities They're applying more and more pressure to women to have children in an environment which actually makes it very difficult to raise children. So, yeah, I just feel like the party is speaking a different language to this rising group of angry, educated, young Chinese women. They're speaking different languages to each other. They're moving in different directions. Well, Errol, I don't know
1: where this is going to go. Your article is titled China's Female Revolt. It's my own experience that women generally are not weak. We are the stronger sex. I don't mean that rudely, Erin. But if they <laughs> organise themselves, I think the Chinese government's in for a rough trot. Erin, Saren, thanks very much for joining us again on Counterpoint and giving us an insight into the very difficult situation women in China face. Thank you. In China and here, frankly, there needs to be a much bigger focus on domestic violence. You know, it's more important than who ends up the next president of the United States, but let's talk about that. One year out from the United States election, let's have a look at the stakes for Australia and the alliance. And fortunately, the United States Studies Centre has recently done a report, and it is fascinating on the views of Australians, Americans, And Japanese. So let's talk to Jared Monshine. He's Director of Research at the United States Studies Centre. And he joins us now. Jared Monshine, there's some key findings that we'd like to go through. It's a very rich report. I wish really sometimes that we had a program where we could do much longer interviews, but let's see if we can give our listeners a good taste of what they can see if they look this up online. The first point was that there are negative views of Beijing across all three countries. But I thought a positive thing is that fewer Australians see war with China as likely.
3: Yeah, that's right. So compared to last year, there's a 9% drop in the number of Australians who think war with China is likely. So it was 59% of Australians in 2022, and that's a 9% drop from this year which is pretty remarkable because you would think that after AUKUS has been announced, that after, you know, the Quad continues to expand and Australia has in many ways invested in its defense capabilities in unprecedented ways, that Australians may be concerned about war. But I think the combination of those investments and maybe, you know, the understanding that deterrence might be working, as well as sort of a lowering of sort of tensions between Canberra and Beijing, have led Australians to think that war is less likely.
1: Yeah. And twice as many Japanese respondents, it was 40%, than Americans, which was 19, about 20, twice as many Chinese say that war with China is very unlikely for their country in the next 10 years. So yeah, yeah. So one might have thought that given the proximity of Japan, there'd be greater apprehension and therefore, I don't know, an expectation of problems, but... I find that quite comforting that twice as many people in a country really nearby say war with China is unlikely.
3: That's right, yeah. So the Japanese view of sort of strategic competition is, I think, a really important one for Australians and Americans to study. I mean, let's not forget the free and open Indo-Pacific, that whole concept that has since been adopted by Australia and the U.S. and even now you could say Korea, it originated with Shinzo Abe and Shinzo Abe, the late prime minister of Japan, he basically revolutionized Japan's thinking on foreign policy, approach to military issues. The way that it does its national security was completely changed. But what's really interesting is that, in my view, Shinzo Abe increased defense spending by a significant amount, despite not having amazing economic growth. But at the same time, he also increased trade with China. I think in many ways, Shinzo Abe gave a model for others that you can walk into chew gum. You can stand up for your national self-interest and make investments in defense as you see appropriate. You can also leave your hand open for trade with China. Now, China was still doing economic coercion of Japan at different points and has done so with Australia, and it has not removed all those areas where it has implemented tariffs on Australian trade, but Still, I think the way that you can, on one hand, invest in major defense capability at the same time that you have trade relations with China leads the Japanese respondents to say, we've been doing this for a little while now and we think that we're okay, basically. And that's why I think you have twice as many Japanese respondents compared to American respondents say that war with China is very unlikely in the next 10 years.
1: Yeah, it's encouraging, I think, that Each of Australia, America and Japan, their public, continue to be in favour of quite robust responses to any Chinese aggression. While there might be a pleasing view that there's not going to be a war, there's not a backing off. There's a favourable view to saying, but if there is aggression, we need to deal with it.
3: Yeah, there's been a lot of accusations that Australia may be sleepwalking to war, that somehow Australia's investments are somehow making the region more destabilizing, I think our polling data shows the public disagrees with that. But at the same time, the public thinks if war is to occur, if a Chinese invasion of Taiwan does occur, then a plurality of Australians are in favor of sending troops to defend Taiwan. But an even larger amount are in favor of economically isolating China, of sending weapons to Taiwan. I mean, I think the Australian public, as well as the American and Japanese publics, are in favour of doing what's necessary, but at the same time, strongly prefer everything short of war. They're not sleepwalking whatsoever.
1: No. And one of the very interesting things you discovered in this is that despite what we hear about what's happening in the United States, and I sort of underline what we hear because... You know, your newsfeed is focused on certain issues and if you live there, you might have a different view. But with all the turmoil that's in our newsfeed about US political dysfunction, really, in the end, both Australians and Japanese, while they might prefer one candidate over another, aren't too concerned in the end with who wins. They don't think it's going to make a big difference the next
3: election. No, no. I think there's a few things to flag it, but. One that I like to tell folks about is that in 2004, when George W. Bush was up for re-election, there were only a few countries that probably would have re-elected him. Obviously, America did, but so would Israel. But also a number of Asian countries probably would have re-elected George W. Bush. So it's important to note that as much as Americans hear about allies being alienated by one president, as the Europeans said during the Bush administration that they were, That's not all American allies, that's European allies. The Asian allies, I think, during the Bush administration and even during the Trump administration really did not face the same sort of challenges that the European allies did. Obviously, Korea is one exception to this, but in terms of Japan and Korea in particular, you're seeing the public are perhaps showing that they were not as concerned about a Trump administration in 2024 as perhaps Europe is, because it's important to note that we are seeing in the U.S. right now, in the Republican Party in particular, a very strong isolationist bent. But what's important to note about the isolationist bent is that it is about Europe and it is about the Middle East. And even now you're seeing Tucker Carlson, who's an influential voice on the right, questioning support for Israel. None of the voices on the right that I've seen have talked about somehow not standing up to China. I think, if anything, you have a debate about whether you should only stand up to China and ignore Ukraine, ignore the Middle East, ignore the rest of the global challenges and only stand up to China. So I think from the perspective of the Japanese and Australian public, but also in their elite, I think in many ways they have less concerns with a Trump administration than other U.S. friends and allies.
1: Well, as you know, we've got this agreement, AUKUS which is apparently about a lot more than subs, fair enough. But it's broadly supported across the three countries, especially in Australia, but in Japan and in the United States.
3: It is. 43% of Australians say AUKUS makes the region safer, and another 49%, which is about half, say that's a good idea for Australians to have nuclear-powered submarines. And we've heard a lot of debate about whether this is somehow, again, causing Australians to sleepwalk to war, whether this is sort of militarizing the region. We even heard a former Australian prime minister criticize AUKUS and Australia's plans around it. But we're not seeing that really strongly play out in the Australian public. In terms of the Australians who are against AUKUS, we found that 14% of all Australians, disagree with the statement that AUKUS makes Asia safer. You know, we saw a pretty loud and somewhat tumultuous Labour Party conference. So where does Labour stand on this? 13% of Labour voters say that AUKUS makes Asia less safe. So you're not really seeing in the Labour voters either. Now, the question of whether it's a good idea for Australia to have nuclear-powered submarines, that has more resonance in terms of when people may not know exactly what AUKUS consists of, but when you say nuclear powered submarines, that's pretty clear. And we found that 19% of Australians disagree with Australia having nuclear powered submarines, and 23% of labor voters disagree with Australia having nuclear powered submarines. But again, about half of the entire public agree that's a good idea. And 50%, similarly, half of labor voters say it's a good idea. So it's really a very loud minority who say that AUKUS and nuclear power submarines are bad ideas.
1: Yeah. Look, can we just go back to the difference between Australia, China and the United States because there are a few differences here. And one of them relates to whether you'd prefer the United States to be the most influential in Asia. Australians and Americans would prefer that, but the Japanese have a different view, don't they?
3: They do. And this is something that I love to flag because we've done polling of Australia and the U.S. and Japan for a couple of years now. But you can also look at polling by Pew and Gallup who have done different global polls. And when you look at the way that they view China, it's remarkable how much U.S. allies and many partners have very similar views on China. A majority of them see China as mostly unhelpful in the region. The majority of them have a negative perception of China. Often, within ten to twenty percentage points, they're all aligned on that. The next step from that is, you know, what should we have done about this? And again, a majority of United States allies and, and many friends and partners agree that collaboration should be the way forward. But the question in my mind then is: All right, next step after that? We've done two steps. Said so China is worrying. Said. Allies and partners is the pathway forward. But what's next? What does that look like? And this is where we get some disagreement. So we asked folks, thinking of U.S.-China competition, would the following outcome in 25 years from now be good or bad for your country? One option we said was China becomes the most economically and militarily influential country in Asia. And we saw pretty similar views. We saw a strong majority of Australians, Americans, and Japanese respondents say it would be bad To very bad for their country, again, within 10 to 20 percentage points across three countries. But but you flagged one area where it was pretty different, and that was, we gave the option, the United States becomes the most economically and militarily influential country in Asia. And on this point, the Japanese were sort of far apart from where Americans and Australians were. Americans and Australians were about 40 to 53% in that range, agreeing. And the percentage who disagreed were also very similar. It was about maybe ten to seventeen percent disagreed. The US and Australia are some. But then with Japan, only twenty-one percent said it would be a good thing for their country. And I think that goes to Japanese public seeing themselves as a major economic and militarily influential country in Asia themselves. And so this I think goes to something that informs, in my view the US and Australian adoption of the term Indo-Pacific. The reason that policymakers or strategic thinkers in the US and Australia and elsewhere adopted that term is that they wanted India to be a power unto itself. They saw that as in the self-interest of their countries to highlight India. But one of the reasons why Japan was one of the first to adopt that term Indo-Pacific was because they also see India and Japan as powers unto themselves. A multipolar Asia, in my view, is in America's interest and in Australia's interest. And a lot of folks, especially those who say that Australia is sort of sleepwalking to war, see only as a bipolar thing and you have to sort of choose one side. But I think that removes the agency of Japan, Korea, India, and a multipolar environment is not only one that is in the US interest, but may even go sometimes against the US favor from time to time. But on the whole is a stabilizing balance of power type of approach that, again, yeah. I think Australia and the US, the strategic thinkers, have adopted, and we're seeing that more and more.
1: Look, it's a very rich read, and I thank you very much for giving us your time today.
3: Thank you, Amanda. It was my pleasure. What
1: let's round about a few of the bad things in hotels first shiny marble floors in the bathroom waiting for you to slip writing on the shampoo and conditioner in the shower way too small a friend of mine had to get out of the shower the other day and get her glasses in order to read which was the shampoo and which was the conditioner because these days one is not clear and the other opaque and what about the terrible room lighting What do they think they're lighting up, a wine bar? When you get into bed, you might want to read. There's no decent lights there. It's hopeless. And TV remotes. You know, they're not sanitised. Don't make me spell it out for you. Carpets that are nests of nastiness. Hell, look, just stay home. Now, if you want to see a giant sequoia tree, thousands of years old, you will have to stay in a hotel because they're in the United States. Somewhere, perhaps in your childhood at school, you would have heard about the giant sequoias in the United States. Just almost awe-inspiring hearing about them. To stand under one and next to one must be an incredible experience, but they're in trouble. And we need to talk about how best to save them. And who better to talk to than Jim Robbins? We've been speaking to Jim for years. We first spoke to him a number of years ago about his book, The Wonder of Birds. And we've spoken to him a number of times since. And we're going to talk to him again now. Jim Robbins, welcome back to Counterpoint. How long since you've stood next to a sequoia tree?
4: Well, it's been several years for sequoias. And only several months, though, for redwood trees, which are the companion trees, also giant trees in the same family in California.
1: What does it feel like to stand next to a tree that's that large and that old? I mean, how old, for example, would be the tree you most recently, the big one that you stood next to?
4: Around 2,000 to 2,500 years old. Those are the redwoods in Redwood State and National Park in California. And it's awe-inspiring. Words fail you when you stand and look up at a tree that big and just it's humbling as well. You just feel like insignificant comes to mind when you stand below trees that size and that Mm. old.
1: Now, you've recently had a number of pretty rough fires in the United States and maybe for the first time an unusually large number of the big sequoias were killed by the blaze and, you know, When a plant that's thousands of years goes, you can say we'll plant another one, but it's, you know, you're not going to be able to stand under that newly planted tree in that new condition for thousands of years. So it's a terrible thing. What's the cause of this?
4: Well, it has several causes. One of them is the fact that the planet is growing warmer and that's changing the ecology of these trees California has had a long-term drought. One of the worst in recorded history occurred from 2012 to 2016, and our most extreme in history. And then that killed a lot of trees in California. It killed a lot of the trees that lived below these giant trees. These giant trees were thought to be immune from being destroyed by fire because their bark is so thick and their branches are so high off the ground. But when all the trees below them died from this drought, it created what's called a fire ladder. And fires came through there and torched these trees below and got up into the branches of the big trees. And some nearly 20 percent of the monarch trees that's bigger than four feet in diameter were killed in these fires. And up until then, fires killed one or two a year, if that. So it's been an extreme change in the number of trees that have been killed in fires. The other part of this is that as it gets hotter and you have hot droughts, something called vapor pressure deficit that is how thirsty the atmosphere is, it gets thirstier exponentially as temperature goes up in a linear way. So we're seeing an atmosphere that is sucking a lot more water out of these trees and it forces them to close their stomata in the leaves, and that also can kill these trees or dry them up to the point where fire will take a bigger toll.
1: Yeah. You mentioned the oldest sequoia is more than 3,200 years old. 3,200 years old. God help me. But there's another tree in North America, a bristlecone pine, that has grown for longer. How long would that be? And are they as big or nearly
4: as big? They're not as big. They are a very different-looking tree. I've been into the bristlecone pines several times, and they almost look like they're dead. I mean, they're a pretty good-sized tree, nothing like the redwoods, but they grow pretty big, and they lose all their bark except for a strip along the outside. That's how they survive in extreme low-temperature and high-altitude environments. So they look almost like they're dead, but they're not. In fact, there was an episode back, I think in the 60s, when a researcher was coring one of these trees with a drill to find out how old it was, and his drill got stuck. It was a brand-new drill, and so he asked the Forest Service if he could cut the tree down to get his drill back, and he did, and he found out it was one of the oldest trees on the planet, if not the oldest, over 5,000 years old, and he has been the victim of newspaper and magazine articles ever since as the man who cut down the oldest tree on the planet.
1: Now, we've had experience here where we're starting, I think, I mean, some people would say we're well on the way, but I think we're just starting to really understand the Indigenous knowledge about managing natural landscapes and in particular burning back. There's been a bit of an argument amongst environmentalists who didn't want any burning back, let nature do its course, And now there seems to be an understanding that perhaps Indigenous people knew better all along and burn back is considered important. What's the experience there? And is there an understanding that Indigenous Americans know a lot more than people have in the past given them credit for and that the, the practice of burning back is a good one?
4: Yes, there is an understanding in recent years that the Indigenous use of fire was a much more frequent interval of fire So these fires in California that burned up the big trees, there hadn't been a fire in there for 100 years or more. And what happened is the Forest Service, Park Service, had suppressed these fires, thinking fires were bad. And when a fire then comes through now, 100 years after all of the trees that have died are laying on the ground and all this fuel is available for fires, the fire is a lot hotter than it would have been if there had been frequent low-intensity fires. And that's the kind of fire regime that indigenous people practice. They would burn these areas, according to tree ring studies, anywhere from 7 to 25 years apart. And so the fires would come through, clean out all the fine fuels, the the, small trees, leaving kind of an open park-like area between far fewer trees. I mean, sometimes we're talking about going from... 700 trees per acre, which is what what some of these crowded forests have, to 100 trees per acre. So, you know, percent or a little more than 10%. So it's a big difference in the ecosystem. And the Thule River Indian tribe has several groves on their reservation in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And they have managed their groves like that in the last 40 or 50 years anyway. Frequent low-intensity fire that keeps it open, good for wildlife and good for the big trees.
1: Okay. Now, what about responses? In any policy area, you often find, look, it might be a bit unkind to call it a knee-jerk response, but such pressure for something to be done that agencies feel pressured into doing things. And they do things without perhaps sufficient background checking and certainly not enough follow-up and end up doing What, over the long term, is the wrong thing? How is it being handled now? Do you think people are recognising the need to be careful in their response?
4: There's some emotional things going on here. One is these trees are culturally important. People come from all over the world to see these trees. Millions of people come to see the sequoias in Sequoia National Monument and come to see the redwoods. And I will add, by the way, that the redwoods are seeing fire behaviour even though they're coastal and they're in a much more precipitation they're moist coastal environment, they're also seeing fire behavior that's unprecedented. So it's happening there as well. But anyway, yeah, so people come from all over the world to see these trees. These trees have names. The General Sherman tree, the General Grant tree, the King Arthur tree is one that died in these fires. It was the eighth largest sequoia in the world. And so that's very emotional. And these agencies, the Forest Service and the Park Service, are charged with protecting these culturally important trees. And so it's important to keep these trees alive. And when you lose 20% or so of these giant trees, one biologist told me this is an existential crisis. This is about whether these things are going to be around it for the future. And this is after, you know, two and 3,000 years we're looking at perhaps the end of this important tree species, and maybe we'll just have zoo specimens left, and we won't have a working ecosystem, which is also key. So the Forest Service and Park Service, which control most of the 80 or so groves, declared an emergency, and they decided that they would clear out smaller trees below the big sequoias. They would come in with logging equipment, and come in with hand crews to cut down trees with chainsaws and try and make it look like it looked when fires came through frequently. That was their goal. And in declaring an emergency, they skipped a lot of the, almost all of the analysis that goes along according to federal law. They need to do an assessment of what this would mean. And so they declared an emergency. That means that they could do whatever they wanted right away without an environmental impact statement or anything. And many groups, environmental groups, said, no, we can't do that. This is not an excuse to skip process, due process. And so they were sued. And they have been sued by other groups as well for other things, people who think this is wrongheaded. So it's a bit caught up in the legal end of things right now. But they have cleared something like eight or 10,000 acres out of 20-some-thousand acres. So they have done some work. And I was in the redwoods recently, and they're doing a similar thing there where they're cutting down a lot of trees. And reintroducing fire, that's an important part of this, is to reintroduce prescribed fire. And it definitely after a year or two, it looks much healthier than it does before the logging takes place. So that's where most of the science says that this is a good thing. There is some science that says otherwise, but preponderance of science says this kind of treatment is really important for these forests to be healthy, essentially. Jim
1: Robbins, you've had a fascinating life. I mean, The Wonder of Birds was a great book. You've written about trees and now you've got this article about the sequoia and you've shared your time with us and we really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us again on Counterpoint. My pleasure. Funny, isn't it? You know, love nature, love sequoia trees, thousands of years old. But we hate rats. Why? This program is called Counterpoint. For good reason, that's what we bring you. Different viewpoints, counterintuitive views, from smart and interesting people all around the world. Well, today we've got a really good one. We're going to mount the defence of the rat, because the rat has been unfairly maligned for centuries. You know? I mean, they're less pestilent and more lovable than we think. And if you don't believe me, well, you've got to listen to James McKinnon. He's the author of The Day the World Stops Shopping, but more importantly, the author of an article in Hakai magazine, In Defense of the Rat. James McKinnon, thanks for joining us today. And look, I have to ask, have you got a pet rat?
0: (laughs) I do not have a pet rat right now. But I have Ah. in the past owned a couple of rats, really only for a very brief time.
1: Yeah. Did you love them?
0: I did, although my father at the time worked as a college professor in a psychology department. So they were Mm -hmm. actually
3: Ah, rescued, to use the modern
0: term, (laughs) from the lab. And yeah, they were particularly sensitive around humans, we might say.
1: Rats bred for university research have the cleanest lungs. But look, that's beside the point. What's the story about the plague? Everyone says, oh, rats, they're terrible. They spread the plague. What's your view?
0: Right. Well, I think, as you say, we've all long held this belief that the bubonic plague, the Black Death of the 1300s, was spread by rats and that it happened through the mechanism of rats being covered with fleas because they're dirty pestilent animals. The plague would start to spread through the rat population, kill them off, and then their fleas would leap onto humans and bite us and spread the bubonic plague. The problem with that theory that started to emerge sometime around the early 1970s is that people started to realize that there wasn't a lot of evidence, or in some cases, no evidence whatsoever, that there were large populations of black rats, the ones that are known for spreading the bubonic plague, in Europe north of the Mediterranean. So, if the rats weren't there, then perhaps they weren't guilty of spreading the Black Death. And, of course, the Black Death is the kind of origin story for a lot of our loathing about rats that has continued yes. on to today.
1: And now this is pretty much accepted knowledge, is it, that they weren't responsible? It
0: is. Yeah, it's widely held. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's uncontested. There's certainly usual scientific process still at work here, but there are now multiple threads of scientific pursuit from genetics to history to archaeology that are all indicating the same thing, which is that there most likely weren't large populations of rats in Europe at that time, and that the way that the disease was spreading is now referred to as the human ectoparasite theory. And what that means is that it wasn't rats' fleas jumping off the rats and biting us that was causing the bubonic plague to spread. It was our own unsanitary habits in that era and our own tendency as societies to push our poor and marginalized into unclean housing, squalid housing, and that it was our own parasites human fleas and human lice that were spreading the disease.
1: Mm, Well, I think that's a good thing. Now, we know a bit more about rats. Apparently, they make really good pets. Now, that's not a meritorious reason for not detesting an animal just because they're a good pet, but it does colour in what has been a pretty bleak picture that's been painted of them. Now, your article suggests that you can play hide-and-seek with a rat.
0: That's exactly right. And I mean, this was an absolute surprise to me as well. But <laughs> uh, researchers in Germany, they set out, and it's not totally clear to me why, but they set out to try to train rats to play hide and seek. And it turned out the rats could learn both of those roles very efficiently. But maybe more importantly, they really enjoyed the game. They were, were really engaged with it. When you read the descriptions or watch the videos that are available of the rats playing hide and seek with the human experimenters, they're much like little children. So, for example, a rat that's hiding, once it's found by the human who's looking for it, it'll often run away and rehide so that it can extend the game. And yeah, they mentioned in the study that the rats would even do these little joy jumps. They used a German word for it, but it translates as joy jumps when it was time to play the game. And they would also carry out this ultrasonic chirping that has been associated with what scientists call positive affective states, but what we would call laughter.
1: So, if you have a pet rat, you can play hide and seek with it, and it will actually emit sounds that indicate the equivalent emotion of laughter. So if you have a pet, you can tickle its belly and it literally might giggle with you. Do you believe That's that? Right.
0: yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it, I've witnessed it. It's emerged as the way that people are now starting to habituate rats to human touch in laboratories. It's also how they reward rats. And this is one of the things I found most interesting about the hide-and-seek study is that they weren't even rewarding these rats with food. We normally think of laboratory animals as being rewarded with delicious that's food trained. rewards for participating in these studies, and that's their motivation. But in this case, their only motivation for joining in the game was that they would get tickles when they were found or when they found their captor. So they were motivated not by you know profit in a rat sense, but simply by the desire to play.
1: Hmm. And there's other things that have been discovered. The Vancouver Rat Project, apparently set up because it was considered one of Canada's biggest rat cities, discovered that rats don't sort of swarm around a city, that they stay in quite a small area, even on one side of the street, for example. Their physical activity counts against them spreading bugs as well because they stay in their own little home area.
0: That's right. And Vancouver is my home city, so this really was interesting to me as well that old image we have mostly out of hollywood movies of rats just pouring through cities even the movie ratatouille from a few years ago it's a pretty rat friendly movie i would say it presents rats in quite a positive light but even it sort of shows these colonies of rats pouring out into the city and it turns out that's just really not what rats do most rats in cities are home bodies. They don't like to stray too far from their nests. Most of them don't travel further than about the length of a city block in a day. So yeah, this idea that there are swarms of pestilent rats is really just not supported at this point by the research that's been done.
1: Okay, now the other thing is about the degree to which they might spread other bugs. Well, I can accept, I've certainly read the article and there's plenty of detail that indicates it was us, not them, that spread the plague. But that doesn't mean you can't get other bugs from them, except that they're apparently not a vicious animal. They're not likely to bite you. People are involved in catching them, so they're not that sort of animal. But they can spread disease, I suppose, like any animal can. Do you think they're dirtier than, say, having a dog around the house?
0: No, I mean, my impression is that they may not be. I mean, they certainly are capable of carrying disease. And one researcher I spoke to described them almost as a sponge for diseases. But that doesn't mean that every rat that you encounter is going to be carrying disease. So there was a study in Vienna, Austria, for example, where they went around and captured rats and searched for eight pretty serious diseases that they knew rats were capable of carrying and that they could transmit to human beings and they caught their rats in areas that had pretty heavy human traffic. And the end result of their study was that they didn't find a single rat that was carrying any of these diseases. So, you know, no one would suggest that rats can't carry diseases that can have serious consequences for human beings, but rather that every rat you meet is not necessarily the dirty, pestilent, disease-carrying animal that I think we've always all thought they were. And that suggests that we may be able to tolerate them more in our human environments than we have in the past.
1: Mm. And last but not least, I have to ask about the researcher who claims that rats have personalities. Now, look, dogs do, cats do. Why wouldn't rats?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, you talk to pet owners who own rats and they will absolutely assure you that rats have highly varied personalities And this came up with every single rat researcher that I spoke to. One of my favorite stories that I presented in the article was a rat named Lazarus. And Lazarus took that nickname because when the researcher first found him in a trap, she thought that Lazarus was dead. But it turned out that he was really just very relaxed in the trap and having a bit of a nap. And then (laughs) Lazarus proceeded to return to the trap and be captured almost every day. And No one can say exactly why Lazarus chose to do this, but, you know, the the most obvious assumption would be that after his first experience, Lazarus realized he could get in there, eat the peanut butter and oatmeal that was presented as a bait, and then just have a nap in a safe place until somebody came along to release him. So, I mean, that's one rat with an unusually strong and distinct personality.
1: Yes, and not dumb either.
0: Not at all. No, I mean, they're terrifically intelligent animals.
1: Yeah, James McKinnon when we did this program I never imagined I'd be interviewing someone on the pleasures of having a rat as a pet and standing up for them almost as in a courtroom as people have in the past hundreds of years ago when they used to put animals on trial and you win the day thanks very much for joining us thanks so much Well, that's the program for this week. Thanks for joining. And I hope you join again next week. By the way, thanks for the feedback. It's always welcome. So keep those emails rolling in. Until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying see you later.